Well, good morning. It's great to be with you here this morning. I wish it were under better circumstances. Of course, we continue to pray for Pastor Zach and his family. Um, My family could not be with us this morning, but Naomi sends her love to to you. Uh, The girls are keeping us busy, and uh, life is just flat-out crazy for us in Springfield. So uh, Mike Freeze called me earlier in the week and asked if I could... uh, uh, fill the pulpit this Sunday, and I said, "You bet." And and uh, and at the time, I was uh, kind of working on a message on uh, what the Bible has to say about forgiveness. What does real forgiveness look like? And and uh, and I made contact with Laura earlier in the week, and I said, "Yeah," I said, "Yeah, I think I'm uh, leaning in this direction." And she said, "Okay, well, get us your sermon title and your text as soon as you can." And and uh, well, I got to tell you, Laura and JC were exceedingly gracious to me this week because I didn't get them their stuff in time. And so you'll notice in the bulletin, uh, there's an empty outline sheet for you to take notes. And uh, Lord willing, I'll, I'll give you an outline that you can follow along, but you got to make it yourself. Um, and, and we went a different direction in terms of the text. We're going to be uh, in First Peter chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to, in a moment, tell you why we... Landed on why I landed on that text. Uh, I just couldn't shake some of the things that the Lord had put in my heart and my mind. Some things that have uh, uh, been rattling around there uh, for about the last month or so. Um, one of the the neat things uh, about our current ministry at the State House is the uh, the the uh, uh, the deepening of relationships uh, for the gospel's sake. And last month I had a, an opportunity to travel to California with some men from Southgate Baptist Church. And, uh, and we set out to climb Half Dome in Yosemite uh, National Park. But we took along an extra guy, and the guy in the Ohio State shirt is uh, Representative Reggie Stoltzfus. Uh, he uh, represents a uh, district up north near Canton, and we, uh, we took him along with us. And uh, Reggie's a neat guy. He's a small business owner up north. He and his family uh, have Mennonite uh, roots, but they attend a non-denominational church uh, just outside of the the Canton area. He owns a wood truss company, and uh, I've had the opportunity of getting to know Reggie. Reggie has helped us in our ministry immensely, and we are grateful for our partnership with him. He's what we call an insider. In order for our ministry at the State House to take off, we have to have an insider, a member, a legislative member who will sponsor our Bible study and invite uh, their colleagues to come. Reggie's our, our insider right now. And, uh, but it, it, it was an awesome time. We spent a full week in California. We hiked about 45 miles. And on one particular day, we hiked 18 miles as we sought uh, summit this peak of Half Dome, and I don't know if you can see in the background, there's a little finger trail there. That, those are cables and people climbing up there. That's the trail. Uh, the angle was uh, at times 65 degrees or steeper, and uh, it was uh, pretty precarious going up Half Dome. I think uh, actually a lady fell to her death uh, later in the, that same week that we were there. Um, but it was a spectacularly clear day initially uh, until we got to the top and some of the wildfires out there 
had begun to settle down and there was a little bit of a fog that were that was settling in on the horizon. But this was beautiful country, and if you've not been out west, I would encourage you to do so. And I and I make mention of this trip because um, there were five of us in the group, and there are five chapters to First Peter, and we made it our aim to study First Peter together while we were there. And so one of the the great things about our our ministry at the State House is that it's affording us to build deeper relationships with people outside of the State House. Now uh, we're cultivating real redemptive friendships that are advancing the gospel football there at our state's capital. Wednesday, we were there at the capital. We continued our Bible study in the 13th floor of the Rife Tower, directly across from the uh, State House. And I uh, wish I had a wider lens on my camera because our conference room was jam-packed with people. Uh, but I couldn't resist snagging this picture here. It's always fun when we can put members to use and make them do some real work at the State House. And uh, we had uh, Representative Gross taking notes for us on the whiteboard in the conference room. And we were studying out James chapter 3. And James compares and contrasts what uh, earthly wisdom looks like versus wisdom that comes from above. And later in that day, we had one of the members uh, chase us down and say, that was the best Bible study I've ever been a part of. He said, if there's ever a time that we need wisdom from above, it's, it's this time. And uh, if you've been following any of the um, happenings at the State House in Columbus, you'll know that there is a lot of contention surrounding the uh, vaccine mandates that are coming out of Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, there were three bills that essentially uh, did similar things to provide employees protection from vaccine mandates. And uh, the Republican caucus was not in agreement in terms of which bill to advance. And uh, we were set to pray my ministry colleague and I were set to open the house in prayer the last two weeks. And uh, the caucus ran late. Session was to, set to begin at 1 o'clock, and 1 o'clock came and went. 1.30 came and went. The gallery in the house chambers are full. 2 o'clock comes rolling around, and uh, members be, begin to enter into the chambers red-faced and angry. And, uh, and they, many of them spot Brian and I from across the way, and they made a beeline toward us. And before I knew it, there was a gathering of members around us on the House floor. And one of the members said, boy, are we glad you guys are here today. Because if there's ever a day we need help from God, it's today. And we need somebody to bring us before the throne of grace. And uh, if you haven't been praying for our uh, leaders, I, uh, Jim, I appreciate the prayer this morning for our Supreme Court judges. They, they need our prayer. They need wisdom that comes from above because earthly wisdom is flawed and futile. It leads to disorder and chaos. It leads to the exaltation of personal ambition over and above what God wants for people. So I encourage you to continue to pray for our members. Um, the fellow on the far left is Representative Daryl Kick. He's a sixth-generation dairy farmer uh, just north of Mohican State Park. 
is Representative Dick Stein on the far right. I forget off the top of my head which district he represents, but he's one of the good guys down there as well. But, uh, and then Representative Jen Gross, um, who is, probably shouldn't say this publicly, but uh, removed from a committee um, because of a uh, particular stance she was taking. I think it was a, an appropriate stance, but when you take a stand for what is right, uh, there are consequences that come. So you can pray for these members by name, um, but there's a, a brief update in our ministry. Uh, there's more to share, but let's spend the rest of our time in the text of First Peter. I've entitled the, uh, the sermon this morning, Seeds and Stones, Building a Life That is Worthy. And before we go to the book, let's speak with its author and ask him for help in understanding what he wants us to. Father, we, uh, we give our time to you. It's yours anyway. You are the sovereign one of the universe. And we acknowledge that you alone are God. And we give you thanks that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. And you have revealed your standard for how we are to live and conduct ourselves in this fallen world until your son Jesus returns. Lord, as we jump into chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we walk through this text, Lord, I'm, I'm convinced that there are things in this passage that we all need to lay hold of by faith. I pray that you would be doing a work in our hearts even now, that our hearts would not be hardened, that our minds would not be dull or, or far away, but we, we would be together laser-focused on the passage in front of us and that your Spirit would, would give us aid in rightly dividing this truth and that we would appropriately apply it to our lives as we leave here. So Lord, I pray this earnestly that we would leave here a little bit different than when we came in. Because your word is alive and active. Lord, we pray for your help this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I'd encourage you to follow along with me. And if you're in the habit of taking notes or marking in your Bible, uh, I give you free license to circle something that, that God is just impressing in on your heart this morning. Uh, this might be a familiar text to you. It's a familiar, it has been a familiar text to me. Circle or underline something that jumps out at you in the text. And as the morning rolls along, we'll see if we don't circle back to some of those things that you circle. And if we don't, use that to shape your own quiet time with the Lord this week. Deepen your study. Press into those areas that you might circle or underline in the text. Chapter 2, verse 1, Peter writes this. He says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, let's water ski some and consider this letter of 1 Peter from a 30,000-foot view here. Let's establish a bit of context, and, and uh, I want to just take a couple of moments to give an overview as to the uh, intent of Peter as he writes this letter. Uh, maybe highlight a couple of the major themes, because that will give texture to how we do this deep dive a little bit later into these 12 verses of chapter 2. So this first letter of Peter is named after its author, Simon Peter. And I've got to tell you, reading through this letter, I'm astounded that this is the same Peter that we read about in the Gospels. This Peter, of course, is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He was the, he was the one that was continually running ahead of Jesus and the other disciples. He was continually doing and saying stupid things. Yet he was part of Jesus' inner circle. And Jesus loved him and had big plans for him. And Peter would provide needed leadership for the early church in Jerusalem. You know, Peter gets a bad rap for all the impulsivity and the ridiculous things that he said. But you know what? At least Peter got out of the boat. You remember that story where Jesus came walking to the disciples, the disciples were on a boat, and they're in the middle of a storm, and the disciples are freaked out. And then they see Jesus walking toward them, and they're even more freaked out. Here's Jesus walking on the water. Now, 
for those of us who have grown up in church, we remember all those flannel graph stories, and that's not shocking to us and our sensibilities. That Jesus was walking on water, and Peter says, Lord, can I come out to you? And in faith, he steps out of the boat. Now again, we give Peter bad rap because he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank. Well, where were the rest of the disciples? They were back in the boat. Nevertheless, when we study 1 Peter, it's like, wow. The Lord has done a work in Peter's life. And some of the things that he says and how he shapes thoughts and the things that he, he is calling these struggling, suffering believers to do and think about is amazing and deeply pastoral. Peter's name, his given name was Simon, but Jesus changed his name to Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, and is translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Now we learn that Peter composed this letter while he was in Rome toward the later years of his ministry with the help of his amanuensis, a man named Silvanus. This is a circular letter written to many churches in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And he writes this letter to an audience of mostly non-Jewish Christians, like you and me. who were facing hostility and harassment at the hands of their Greek and Roman neighbors. Life as a first century Christian was quite difficult in those days. It was marked by profound difficulty. Peter writes to encourage these believers in the midst of their suffering and their difficulties. He develops major themes throughout this letter. In fact, in chapters, chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 10, and there's some overlap here in the text that we're looking at this morning. He writes to these people concerning their new family identity when they become Christians. When you and I embrace Jesus by faith, we are brought into a new family. And, and this is a largely non-Jewish audience, and throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter, Peter is using Old Testament Jewish language. As if to say that you who are outside of God's family by believing in Jesus are brought into his family. Peter uses all sorts of uh, temple uh, imagery throughout this letter and he's communicating to these non-Jewish people, you have a place inside of God's family. You've got a place of belonging. You know, this is a lonely, cold world. And many of you may not have had the best family upbringing. Some of you have. Uh, there are long-standing families here in West Liberty. Uh, you may be here because your father and your father's father were here. Maybe your family has left a good legacy for you. Many have not. And many of the people that I interact with in Columbus, their families are a mess. 
And Peter is writing to these struggling believers who no doubt are scattered abroad and may not feel like they have a place to belong. And he's saying, in Christ, you've got a place in God's family. Secondly, in chapter 2, 11 through chapter 4, verse 10, a huge section, Peter helps these Christians see their suffering as a means of bearing testimony to Jesus. How do you view your sufferings and your difficulties? Are you prone to say, God, where are you in this? God, you might not be the good God that you say you are in the Bible. God, did I not do my devotions today, so you're just looking to punish me? What kind of God have you created in your own mind? Is it the God of the Bible who communicates His goodness that regardless of our difficulties, God wields them to do good for us? It's a bit of a paradox. And He helps Christians see their suffering as a means of bearing testimony to His Son. Thirdly, from chapter 4, verse 12 to chapter 5, verse 9, Peter helps them see that their suffering and persecution that they are facing isn't simply cultural or political. Rather, there are real and dark spiritual forces at work inspiring all kinds of violence and hatred. Christians are supposed to resist this evil by remaining faithful to Jesus in His teachings, by anticipating His return and ultimate victory over this evil. I am continually blown away at how God's Word over and over proves itself to be timeless and appropriate for all people, in all places, in all times. Well, chapter 2 begins with the word, so. Maybe your translation has the word, therefore. And for uh, those of you who have studied the Bible for any length of time, you have an antenna that is uh, going off right now. You're saying, hey, I, I know what I'm supposed to do when I see or encounter a connecting word like so or therefore. When we come to the word therefore, I'm supposed to ask myself, what is it? Well done, class. Lacked a little bit of enthusiasm today. I, I, I get it. So, or therefore, why is it therefore? So is therefore, because Peter is continuing a thought that he had begun in chapter 1. For those godly, good-willed men in the 1st or 2nd century, or maybe a little bit, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit later than that, who inserted the chapter headings and verse, uh, verses, they didn't take into account that they inserted chapter 2 right in the middle of a thought that Peter was making here. So we launch into chapter 2 right in the middle of something that Peter is saying. So in order to get the full grasp or the full power or the full sense of what Peter is saying, let's go back to chapter 1. And in verse 23 we see what Peter is saying. Peter says in verse 23, Since, since... Star since or circle since, since you have been born again, not of 
perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of, of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. This first part, I want to highlight what Peter is communicating to us about this imperishable seed. This imperishable seed is, uh, is, is something that's important for us to, to understand. This imperishable seed, Peter says, is what brings us new life. It's what makes us born again. Now, again, Bible study students, as soon as you see that phrase, born again, that should transport you back to the Gospels in John chapter 3, where Jesus had a very important encounter with a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee at the time. And Nicodemus was trying to feel Jesus out, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And that blew the circuits in Nicodemus' brain. And he says, uh, am, I, am I supposed to go back into my mother's? How is that? Sp- Jesus, that doesn't make sense to me. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and Peter is saying to us, that unless a person repents of their sin and savingly believes that Jesus is the Son of God and the one who bore their sin on the cross and, and they affirm the reality of his resurrection, unless a person embraces Jesus by faith, they cannot be born again. They cannot be saved from the penalty of their sin. And Peter writes, since. Since they have been born again. He is appealing to a past reality in their spiritual journey and asking them to call it to mind and evaluate all that has happened and all that happened when God changed the eternal trajectory of their soul. Since you have been born again by way of an imperishable seed, which Peter defines as the living and abiding Word of God. He says here that, that God's Word is living. It's living. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17 says that God's Word is literally breathed out and is profitable. So that we, when we encounter God by way of His Word, this isn't dead, it's not stale, it's not just ink on a page. This exudes life. It breathes life into us. It's God's Word. It's an imperishable seed. Have you ever planted a perishable seed? What happens? Nothing. 
You just buried something. Nothing happens. But an imperishable seed, you plant it in good soil, what happens? Something grows. It produces fruit. It demonstrates that it's alive. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Peter is saying this imperishable seed that has brought new life in us never fails. It never dies. It doesn't wither. It doesn't fail. It remains forever. God's Word is alive and it abides. It remains forever. And then he says in verse 25, oh, by the way, in case you aren't convinced, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's good news. It's, it's so good, in fact, we need to rehearse it to ourselves over and over and over again. We need to normalize it into our life. It needs to roll off of our tongues because it's so natural for us. If you were dead and have been brought to life, which is what being born again means, don't you want others to know about that past reality? Don't you want others to know what God has done in your life? So in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in your school or at the state house or in the places that we go, we need to normalize the truth of God's word wherever we go. Because our lives now bear testimony to that which God has done in us through this imperishable seed. It's living, it's abiding, and it remains forever. And the watching world is dying and needs desperately to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good news. And it's awesome to be a part of of seeing somebody come to know Christ. Have you had a front seat view of someone laying hold of the truth of the gospel? Maybe it was your child or your grandchild or maybe it was a friend or neighbor. Maybe God used you instrumentally in the life of a friend and over the course of decades you had a chance to normalize your faith in interactions and over the course of time God saw fit at the appointed time, to draw them to himself. And you got to see it happen. And you got to play a role in that. How fulfilling and how life-giving is that for you? And so many Christians are missing out on that great blessing. That's what it means to live a missional life. It's through this imperishable seed. Okay. So point number one, we're talking about this imperishable seed, which is the word of God. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we see Peter dealing with this idea of milk. So he's shifting gears in his metaphors, and he's changing his imagery. And um, and I want to talk briefly about three ways to build your spiritual life. And like newborn infants, Peter writes in verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord 
is good. The milk industry has developed several catchy uh, marketing campaigns to communicate to the public the benefits of drinking milk. Now, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and, uh, and I remember uh, the campaign that uh, the milk industry used, and it was, uh, it was titled, Milk Does a Body Good. And uh, through a series of commercials, there would be like this... Uh, this skinny, gangly, uh, unattractive, undeveloped preteen kid, and uh, and they would be uh, talking to themselves in a mirror while drinking a uh, a carton of milk, and they were talking about the the benefits of of uh, of how milk you know builds uh, uh, strong bones and strong muscles and healthy skin and, and all of that sort of thing. And, and the person in the mirror is their future self. And all of a sudden they're growing up into this attractive young lady or this strapping young lad, you know, who could leap tall buildings in a single bound or whatever. And uh, it's like, oh man, I'm, I see that. I'm going to run to the refrigerator and get me a glass of milk right now. Because I was like 80 pounds when I was a freshman in high school. I need more milk. Milk, it does a body good. Eventually, the uh, campaign turned to just simply got milk, question mark. And over and over again, there were different celebrities that would show up with their milk mustache, right? And you knew that they had partaken of the milk because they're popular, they're famous, they're wealthy, and they had a milk mustache. Got milk? Peter is saying to us this morning, got milk? Now, I did a little research this week on milk and dairy cows. Did you know, here's a few fun facts for you. Did you know that Nero's second wife actually kept 500 donkeys for her milk baths? Seems a little extravagant and out of touch, right? Uh, maybe it's another reason why people today name their dogs Nero and their sons Peter and Paul. Researchers in the UK claim that cows with names, named cows, you know, Bessie and Gertrude and I don't know what other cow names you might name your cow, but a cow with a name actually produces two to four times more milk per year than unnamed cows. So if you've got a dairy cow in your backyard, give that poor girl a name. The average cow produces 90 glasses of milk per day. That's, uh, that's about 200,000 glasses of milk over a lifetime. Cows produce more milk when listening to music, kind of like people. A cow's udder holds between 25 and 50 pounds of milk. And I'd say that's utterly amazing. <laughs> milk provides the essential nutrients for newborn infants. Uh, no other time in, in human development does a person's body experience 
more growth and more change than when they are babies. And what they need is pure milk. Likewise, we as Christians need the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. Notice, notice the word pure there. It's unspoiled, untainted, undiluted, which is to say that we need God's Word purely. Not God's Word plus anything. Not the Bible plus philosophy. Not the Bible plus psychology. Not the Bible plus your favorite celebrity, preacher, author, person. Authentic Christians need the pure Word of God. I think that there are three ways that you and I can grow our spiritual life. And the first thing is to remember what we have tasted. Look at what Peter says. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have, past tense, tasted that the Lord is good. It's a quote out of Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you? Past reality. Three ways to grow our spiritual life. The first one is to remember what you've tasted. Peter quotes this famous psalm, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to experience the Lord's goodness. And I think it's interesting that the characteristic of God that the psalmist and Peter chooses to highlight here is God's goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not taste and see that the Lord is strong. Not taste and see that the Lord is just or omnipotent or even holy. Of course, He is all those things, but Peter is writing to a people who need to know and be convinced of God's goodness. If God is sovereignly walking me through a difficulty, His attribute of omnipresence is not necessarily the thing that is going to bring me comfort and peace. No, it's His goodness. God, You're good and Your purposes are good. And while this situation hurts, You are paradoxical paradoxically, using it for good in my life. Brian, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good in this. Remember that He is good. It calls us back to when we were first saved. Do you remember when you were first saved? Where God opened the eyes of your heart and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves? Do you recall all the situation, all the circumstance surrounding that time? Do you recall how, how awesome it felt? Do you recall how you longed for God's Word? That you wanted to hear more about Him? That you couldn't get enough of this Jesus who gave Himself for you? Do you recall that time? Do you recall when you tasted and saw that the Lord was good? 
I don't think we do enough of that. I don't think we do enough of rehearsing our own salvation stories to ourselves or to one another. If I were to ask you to, to, to look around, you don't have to do this right now, but if I were to ask you to look around uh, at the three or four pew radius around you, could you, in a moment's notice, tell me the person's salvation story who is sitting within a radius around you? Could you tell me how they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Would they be able to tell me about how you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Oh, that's just milk, Brian. I desire the meat. I want to talk about lapsarianism and super-lapsarianism and supra-lapsarianism and all of that other stuff. I like the meat. Don't be tempted to grow past the gospel. Don't do it. It's the milk, the pure milk of God's word that sustains the life of the believer. And share with one another how you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. One of the things that I have done in my life over the last probably 10 years, I keep coming back to this little book. And I picked up this book at Alistair Begg's church at a pastor's conference years ago. It's, uh, it's entitled A Gospel Primer for Christians. I've literally bought hundreds of copies of this book and given them away. And this little book argues in the first part of the book why it's essential for Christians to preach the gospel to themselves every day. In the second part of the book, it deals with the gospel that you should preach to yourself every day. And the third part of the book is And when you're tired of preaching that gospel to yourself every day, here's the gospel in poetic form. Preach that to yourself every day. Rehearse how God is good. You've tasted and seen that he is good. I'm going to ask that you would indulge me to read for a couple of minutes to you. And my prayer is that what is here might encourage you in the way that it has encouraged me and spurred me along to recall God's goodness in my life. And as I say the pronoun I, I pray that you would share in that. Insert yourself. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him And to his goodness, my life in every way is his and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. He has created me with the intention that I might glorify Him by finding my soul's delight in Him and by living in joyful obedience to Him in all of my ways. 
Yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I have rebelled against Him and have actually sought to exalt myself above Him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I've shown myself to be a fool. Because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of His terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ... I am bound by the guilt of my own sin and also bound to the power of sin and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am so utterly deserving and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do God did. And in doing it, He did it all. Sending His own Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that He was willing to suffer the loss of His Son. And even more amazingly, He was willing to allow His Son to suffer the loss of Him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely, completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand where Christ now reigns on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me of all my past sins, present sins, and future sins. He made me his child, adopting me into his family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again. For sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have a peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed me, allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now only has love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. 
God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials. Because I'm justified one, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. And when I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status and as described above. And when I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart toward me at all. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me and he longs for me to repent and confess my sin to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God doesn't require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart he has already forgiven me. And when I come to Him and confess my sin to Him, He runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me, even before I get the words of my confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins, and He's grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of His love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life. But he does does so because he's for me. He loves me and he disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this. Even on my best day. But this is my salvation. And herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Does it roll off your tongue? Does this just set your heart ablaze? Do you want to erupt in thanksgiving? I do. Remember what you have tasted. Reject junk food. So the milk is good. Got milk? If not, you need it. But there's junk food. And, uh, and we know that a steady diet of junk food is not good for us, right? Uh, if I sat around and ate Twinkies all day, my cholesterol, my blood pressure, and my weight would skyrocket. It's not good. It forces my heart to work harder than it needs to. Spiritually, there is spiritual junk food that exists in our life, and we've got to resist it. And the five pieces of junk food that Peter lists here are all relational sin. Verse 1 of chapter 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put those things away. It's junk food. And it's slowly poisoning you. So much so that you've forgotten what actually tastes good. Uh, On occasion, I'll take uh, students and people to the Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada for week-long canoe trips. And we'll canoe about 60 miles. And while we're out in the wilderness, we're having a steady diet of some not-so-awesome food. Uh, It's usually oatmeal and 
pasta, rehydratable foods. And by the end of the week, I'm tired of granola bars and trail mix and that sort of thing. And about uh, the second to the third, second or third last day, I'm thinking nonstop about a nice, fat, juicy steak. And that's all I can think about. And these substitutes, they're just not fulfilling to me. And you'd say, yeah, okay, I can get on board with that. And for what reason are we as followers of Jesus malicious, deceitful, hypocritical, envious, and slanderous? Maliciousness is a wicked ill will. It's an, it's a, this is intentional harm committed against one another. This is a, uh, having a general sense of, of grouchiness and meanness. And you know who you are if you're here. And you're that grouchy church member. And it doesn't matter what happens in this place. You're just mad. Why? Music was awful today. It's too traditional. It's too contemporary. Boy, that teacher was dry today. Boy, that pastor, good grief. Couldn't get his act together. Couldn't stay, couldn't stay with his line of thought. Man, are we ever going to do a good men's ministry outreach thing here? Our children's ministry, oh my word. Just not capturing the imagination of my teen. It's difficult to make malicious people happy. And they exist in every church. And if you were to look inside their heart, it would be like looking at an autopsy. Maliciousness as a way of killing the family of faith. Deceit. Deliberately being dishonest in order to gain an advantage over somebody else. It's kind of like relational fishing. Casting out a baited hook. You're intentionally trying to be deceitful. To pull the wool over somebody else's eyes. Hypocrisy. Pretending to be somebody or something that you're not. It's literally being a stage actor. Stop pretending to be a Christian. Nothing does more harm to the great name of Jesus and his church than the one who pretends to be a follower of Jesus. They wear their Christian mask on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday they put the mask in the drawer only to pick the mask back up on Sunday morning again. Envy, desiring something that someone else has. It's a resentful discontentedness. It's also an inability to celebrate the fortunate things that, that are occurring in other people's lives. Well, that couple seems to have a happy marriage. Jim just drove in a new car this week. So-and-so's got a successful business. Boy, they've got godly children. Why don't I? Envious people see those things in other people's lives and they're ticked off that they don't have them either. So they begin to begrudge others and the blessings that God has sovereignly brought into their life. Slander, speaking down on one another, 
This is backbiting and lying about one another in a way that doesn't edify or build up. If the Word of God is pure spiritual milk that helps us grow, these five things are like junk food. Steady diet of this junk food, these sinful actions or attitudes are harmful to our spiritual health. They're like a poison that slowly kills us over the course of time. So number one, remember what we have. Two, resist junk food. And then three, make room for the main course. Uh, I think I've asked this question before. Uh, How do you show up for Thanksgiving dinner not hungry? Eat bread. How do you you show up for Thanksgiving dinner not hungry? I mean, it's the best meal of the year. I mean, it's a spread. Well, you stuff yourself full of bread. Filler. Yeah, I don't really feel like turkey. Uh, I don't feel like all these trimmings. I don't feel like the pie. I don't feel like it. I'm just, I'm full, thanks. What? We as Christians do it all the time. We fill up on all sorts of things. And the junk food in our life is crowding it out. Friends, make room for the main course, which is God's word. I wish we had more time to, to delve into this section here. But again, Peter shifts his, his metaphor here, again, speaking of the Word of God and its working in the life of the believer. And he actually calls us living stones. Um, he's using this Old Testament temple-like imagery and, and, he's, and he's talking about stones, living stones and a cornerstone. Now, one of my first jobs out of high school, I worked for a Christian landscaper and... Uh, and we uh, landscaped high-end, multi-million-dollar homes. And in the early 90s, it was all the rage for big, fancy houses to have big, fancy mountain stone retaining walls. And we would build those. And what would happen is a hauler would go up into the mountains and harvest all these huge mountain stones and throw them into a dump truck, and then the dump truck would dump them into the homeowner's driveway in a big old mound. And the stones would range anywhere from 15 pounds to 115 pounds or more. And what we would have to do for the next several weeks is sort through the pile and build these mountain stone walls. And we would carefully select each stone to fit into the wall at its appropriate place. And we were looking for just the right stone for just the right spot so that the wall would stand. And mountain stones were known to stand the test of time. Now, these walls would stand the test of time so long as we got the foundation right. We could find the biggest, squarest stone to get us started. Our wall could stand. We wouldn't wouldn't start building the wall finding the most odd-shaped, small rock to build our wall with. Found the biggest rock that we, we could find. Now, if we were to go to Israel today, we wouldn't find a whole lot of uh, wood 2 by 4 construction. Most of the buildings, most of the structures are built out of stone. It's the most readily available building material that was there. And so if we were to go to Jerusalem even today, we could still find the original, 
cornerstone of the temple complex at the southeast side of the city of Jerusalem. Now get this. This cornerstone measures 39 feet 4 inches long by 7 feet 10 inches wide and is 43 inches tall. One stone. It's estimated to weigh about 80 tons. 80, that's eight zero tons. The craftsmen in those days were amazing. How do you move an 80-ton rock without a bulldozer? This cornerstone not only provided foundational structure and support for the building for the temple, but symmetry for the entire building project. And it set the direction for all sides of the building. If the angle of the cornerstone was off, even by a little bit, the entire structure would be compromised. The other stones stacked on top of the cornerstone would collapse either outward or inward. Friends, I hope that Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. I hope you're not building your faith on just the sayings of Jesus or the example of Jesus or the traditions of those who say they follow Jesus. I hope you're building your life on the rock. Everything else is shifting sand. Peter's point here in this section is that as we come to Christ and we build our lives on Christ, we become like Christ, like living stones. We share in His life and His strength. Christianity is the only belief system in the world where the one we worship becomes our life. Have you ever heard of someone being in Buddha or in Confucius or in Muhammad? Of course not. But over and over again in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we are in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we will appear with Him in glory. As living stones, God uses us to build up a spiritual house. That is who we are. A spiritual house. This is not the spiritual house. The building is not the house. We are. We are. And as we are in Christ, we are living stones built up into a family. Living stones, God uses us to to build up the spiritual house, according to verse 5 of chapter 2. That we would be a chosen race, according to verse 9. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why would he do all of that? What's the purpose of all of that? This is why. He says it in the text. So that an unbelieving, disobedient, watching world who was stumbled on the chief cornerstone, would see your good deeds and glorify God when Christ returns. God's desire is to use us 
and our lives to point people to the Savior who is Jesus. Friends, just because the world at large has rejected Christ and they have said, not for me, I'm good, thanks, but no thanks. That doesn't mean that he is not precious to us. To us, he is precious. And he alone sets the angles and the direction. And it's the smartest choice for any of us to make and build our lives built firmly on the cornerstone who is Jesus. Seeds and stones. God has a way of building lives that are worthy through the truth of his word. In my mind right now, my ears, my ears are ringing with the sound of my grandmother's voice. Brian, junk in, junk out. Junk in, junk out. You continually digest junk coming in, You are what you eat. So friends, if I were to ask you on your way out today to jot in the margin of 1 Peter chapter 2 on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your own longing for the Word of God? One, needing a lot of work. Ten being awesome. They cheer you on. But if we're honest, we're somewhere in the middle there. Friends, I hope you walk out of here with a renewed desire to long for the Word of God. Seeds and stones. God has a way of building lives that are worthy, worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you haven't left us to our own devices. Thank you, Lord, that you are not uninterested in our lives, in the affairs of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are deeply invested in all that takes place in this lower world. Thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to save us through faith in your son, Jesus. And right now, Lord, I just pray for any for any stage actor among us this morning where they're trying to live out the gospel. But it's been fake news to them all these years. They're pretending to be somebody that they're not. Lord, would you press in on their hearts even now? May they sense your drawing them to yourself. Would you take the scales off of their hearts so that they may see that they may taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Lord, and for any of us who have become dull in our walk with you, and we are sustaining ourselves on junk food, Lord, I pray that you would press in on our hearts to confront our sin, recognize what it is, bring it to you that we might know the love in your heart that you have had for us all along. We're grateful for your word, Lord. Build us up in it. We love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.